Elway was a duck. Elway was a duck who thought that he was a dog. His owner adopted him from an animal rescue organization, and when she brought Elway home, her six other dogs greeted him with tails wagging and tongues licking. His owner, Lindsay, had other ducks, but Elway, for some reason, took to the dogs. He would follow the dogs around. He would blend into the pack as much as a duck could. He would fly up onto the couch and nap with the dogs, and when mealtime came, he went to the place where the dog food was served. Elway didn't really know what he was. He thought he was a duck, or he thought he was a dog. But in all actuality, he was a duck. Now, we've all heard animal stories like that, and it illustrates a variety of things, including the power that we have to influence each other and to form identity in each other. And in this instance, you don't really see any harm in it. It's sort of cute to think about ducks walking around with dogs and everybody getting along in the way that they do. It makes for a fun story. But you know, that's not always the case. Sometimes when someone is confused about what they are, it might look okay for a while, but the results could be tragic. Take the story of Elway. That would never actually occur in the wild because a duck hanging out with wild dogs wouldn't last the winter without flying south. Or a duck who thought he was a wild dog would probably end up as the wild dog's dinner. In truth, when someone thinks they're something they're not or possess something that they don't, the results are far more often dangerous than encouraging. This is true for animals. This is true for humans. This is true in the physical realm, and this is true in the spiritual realm. One of the hardest things about Christian ministry is the need at times to convince someone who wrongly believes that they are a Christian to convince them that they're actually not so that they can become a Christian. It's one of those uncomfortable realities that we don't really like to talk about all that often. There are some people who think they are saved. They think they're following Christ. They think they are in line to receive the benefits of God. But in reality, what they need more than anything else is to understand that they're not saved so that they can actually be saved. Paul is dealing with some such people in the church in Corinth. And as he moves toward the end of the letter, he is engaging them. He's engaging those who have opposed him. He's engaging those who are caught in the middle. He's engaging the church at large, and he's engaging us. And he's doing so. He's preparing for a visit for the third time to this particular church, and he's providing another opportunity for them to repent from the sin that they continue to live in so that when he comes... They can keep pressing forward together instead of in opposition to each other. He gives them a warning. 
And we see the warning in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. So follow with me. If you have a copy of the scriptures or follow on the screen, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, starting at verse 1, it says this. Paul writes, This is the third time that I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only what is for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for tearing down. In verses 1 through 4, Paul threatens discipline to them when he comes for a third time. He warns those, he says, who had sinned before and all others, and he warns them now while absent. The sin that he's talking about here is not the sin struggles that are common to humanity, the sin that you and I struggle with even on a daily basis. He's not talking about that type of sin. He is talking about particular ongoing unrepentant sin in the life of this church that constitutes a rebellion against the apostle and against the Lord Jesus himself. And so he says to them that when I come again, I will not spare them. Those are some strong words against those who rebel. And he engages with them again in this theme that he's been working through throughout the whole book. How power and weakness and that dynamic functions in the kingdom of God. We've talked about that at great length over the last number of months because Paul talks about it again and again and again. Remember, for the Corinthians, they, the only way that they would authenticate the message of this apostle was if they saw prosperity and power in him. And his own physical weakness and the fact that he had been persecuted was the reason why they were rejecting him. And in doing so, they were also rejecting Christ who came in physical weakness. You see, the Corinthians viewed power and prosperity and triumph and health as all interconnected in their nature. But their understanding was due to the fact that they were constantly importing the values of their culture into the church. Their understanding of true power was not Christian in nature. 
He was Corinthian in nature. And so Paul moves to correct their understanding and he applies the principle of Jesus to himself. And he does so when he says this. He says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. That is to say this, that Jesus' appearance of weakness in this life, the fact that he was persecuted, the fact that he was beaten, the fact that he was crucified, all things that would make you say he was weak are actually evidences of God's power. And then his resurrection further elaborating on that understanding of power because only God would be strong enough to endure the weakness of the cross. Only God would be strong enough to endure the beatings and the hanging on that cross and the death that ensued. And then only God would be powerful enough to be risen from the dead, which magnifies the power all the more. Paul then applies that to himself and says, even though I've been persecuted and have been weak among you, when I come to exercise discipline, I will come in strength, just as the Lord Jesus displays his strength through the resurrection. This is a warning. These are stern words. And nobody likes to be sternly warned The call is to repent. And this call is made even clearer in verses five through seven. So look at it with me. He says this. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail the test. To examine yourself in the faith or to test yourself to see if Jesus is in you is the call to the Corinthians. And this, of course, implies that you could think you have been in the faith but you've been wrong. And that's a sobering thought. False assurance is a scary place to be. Perhaps you've heard the story of the lost tourist. Just in the last couple of years, a 49-year-old German brewery worker named Erwin Kreutz blew his life savings on a -a once-in-a-lifetime birthday trip to San Francisco. He'd seen it on TV, and he wanted to visit the Wild West. And as the flight from Frankfurt, Germany, stopped to refuel in Bangor, Maine, Before continuing on to California, an airline stewardess who had finished her shift and was departing the aircraft told Kreutz, have a nice time in San Francisco. And her choice of words would change the trajectory of his next coming days because Kreutz, who typically enjoyed drinking 17 beers a day, was a little groggy after the long flight. And upon hearing this, 
He thought that was the indication that they had arrived in San Francisco. And so he got off the plane, he jumped into a cab, and he asked the driver to take him into the city. The cab driver dropped Kreutz off at a hotel in downtown Bangor, Maine. And he found a tavern to quench his almighty thirst. He wandered Bangor for three days, enjoying the sights and sounds that Maine had to offer. And unfortunately, Kreutz still thought he was in San Francisco. He was so certain he was in San Francisco that he didn't stop believing for those three strange days. At one point, he was reassured by the sight of two Chinese restaurants, which he knew were in San Francisco because he had seen on the television. And after much wandering, he decided that he must be in a Bay Area suburb, and so he hailed a taxi cab and asked to be brought to downtown San Francisco. The taxi driver thought he was crazy and sped away, and so he made his way back to the tavern. And in the tavern, he sought help from one of the waitresses, but the language barrier was too difficult to overcome, so she called her friend Gertrude Romine, who spoke German. Romine and her family took Kreutz into their home and word spread of the lost tourist. First to the Bangor Daily News and then to the national news and then even around the world. And upon hearing the story, the San Francisco examiner paid for Kreutz to fly to his initial destination where he was treated like visiting dignitary for his four remaining days before he returned home to work in the brewery in Germany. The lost tourist had finally made it to his destination. You know, it's a sad state of affairs to not know where you are or where you're going. It's a pathetic reality for a lost tourist in Maine to think he's in California. And it's an even more dangerous reality if you function as a lost tourist as you go through your life because false assurance can be a dangerous thing. And the fact that some people have false assurance of their faith doesn't necessarily imply sinister motives though it could, you could be in knowing rebellion against God and still think that you're okay with God, or you could be sincerely wrong about something and have no sinister motive attached to it. And today in our culture, we have this dynamic where there's a squishiness all around truth and sincerity has been elevated almost to the level of importance as actual fact or truth. And so someone might say something like, it doesn't really matter what you believe or what you do, just as long as you do it with good intentions. Just as long as you engage it with sincerity, God will most surely look kindly upon you and honor those intentions, even if they're wrong in their execution. But friends, that's not the way that God works. Jesus says as much to a bunch of sincere people in Matthew chapter 7, Verses 21 and on, he says, Not everyone who says to me, 
Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so what are we to do so that we don't find ourselves in the same position? Where can you find good assurance and solid confidence that you are in the faith, that Jesus is in you, as Paul says? Well, he tells us to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. And then he states it another way. Test to see if Jesus is in you. And that begs the question, how do we examine ourselves? It's interesting to notice that here in chapter 13, Paul doesn't really tell us precisely how to examine ourselves or what to examine ourselves against. But it seems as if what he is saying to the Corinthians would apply to us, that the standard by which they are examining genuine faith against is the reception of the apostle and his teaching himself. If you accept the teachings of the apostles, this is an indication that you are in the faith. If you reject Paul and his message, then it is an indication that Jesus isn't in you. And so what is that teaching? What do we see more broadly? Because certainly we see throughout the New Testament a number of ways that we can try to validate whether or not our faith is genuine or whether or not it's just feigned in its nature. And I can think of at least four that are worth at least brief consideration. Throughout the whole New Testament, we see that there is a standard of examination with regard to belief, don't we? Certain things that we believe. In fact, Jesus points again and again and again to a regular invitation through the Gospel of John, and that invitation is very simply, believe in me. (laughs) Believe in me. Believe that I am the Son of God. Believe that I'm the one who takes away the sins of the world. Believe that I am God here on earth. Believe upon the Lord Jesus and be saved. Paul indicates the same in the book of 1 Corinthians, the first letter to this church. In chapter 15, he talks about a very specific belief, which is the evaluation of your salvation. He says in chapter 15, verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed it in vain. This gospel received in which you stand, by which you're being saved, unless you believed it in vain, which means unless you didn't truly believe it. (laughs) Belief is the standard. 
He says, I delivered to you of first importance of that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. So what is the standard by which we examine ourselves? Well, the first one is very obviously and clearly belief. The second one, I think, is what we might say is associated with belief, and that is what we could call disposition. How do, what is your disposition toward God, especially as it relates to your sin? There seems to be a disposition towards sin which often accompanies genuine belief. Whether that's in Acts chapter two, when the Jews who learn that Jesus is truly the Christ, the Son of God, says they are cut to the heart and they cry out, what must we do to be saved? That's a disposition of sorrow for their sin and a desire for God. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes in verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief, feeling grief about the sins that you have committed toward God. That's a disposition. Sometimes people have the opposite disposition with regard to their sin when they feel conviction. I think of the well-known professional golfer who was playing in a tournament a number of years ago with President Gerald Ford, fellow professional golfer Jack Nicholas, and the evangelist Billy Graham. And at the conclusion of the round, one of the other pros on tour asked, hey, what was it like to play with President Ford and with Billy Graham? And the other pro said with disgust, I don't need Billy Graham ramming his religious stuff down my throat. And he stormed off to the practice tee. And his friend followed him, and after he gave his colleague some time to pound out his fury on a bucket of golf balls, he said, was old Billy pretty hard on you out there in the golf course today? And the professional golfer said, with embarrassment, no, he didn't even mention religion. So Billy Graham said nothing about God, nothing about Jesus, nothing about religion, and this professional golfer walked away accusing him of trying to ram religious, religion down his throat. Why did he feel that way? My guess? Because he was feeling conviction of sin and instead of responding in grief toward God, he responded in pride and self-justification. But friends, genuine repentance, if you're really in the faith, has a disposition of grief for your sin toward God. And so the question is just simply this. Do you feel sorry for the sins that you've committed against God? Do you? Godly grief produces repentance, which leads to salvation. And so test yourself to see in your faith. What are your beliefs? Do they align with the beliefs that are 
from the apostles in the word, not just what you think or feel or want the word to say, but what it actually says. And then what is your disposition toward God with regard to sin? A couple other ways to test yourself. Thirdly is, of course, action, that we are people who don't just profess an intellectual idea or a historical fact, but that actually leads to a change of life. You see this again and again and again throughout the scriptures. John says it well in 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And then lastly, I would say affection, belief, disposition, your actions in this life, your life follows your belief. And then there's an affection, a desire, a spiritual desires. Someone says to me, I don't know if my, my brother's a Christian. And my first question is almost always, do they have any spiritual desires or not? Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So there's, this, there's this idea, right? If you've truly tasted how great God is, then you want more of God. <laughs> you want more of the spiritual things that God gives. You want to understand who he is. You want to understand how he works. He wants to un- you want to understand how you can respond to him. And the point when you take all of this examination together is just very simply this. Genuine faith in the gospel produces a genuine faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Genuine faith in the gospel produces something genuine. Produces genuine faithfulness. That's Paul's question for the Corinthians. It's a good question for me and for you. Is Christ in you? When you look at your life, are you confident that you are in the faith? Not just loosely connected to the faith because you have some kind of general affinity to God or because you go to church or because you come from a Christian family. But have you trusted Jesus to forgive you? Have you turned in grief from your sin? Do you desire the things of God? Paul calls them, and by extension, me and you, to reaffirm our conversion to Jesus. And if you take a big step back and you look at the whole book of 2 Corinthians, he's just hitting this from a lot of different angles, and this is what it looks like. It means that you believe upon Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that you follow the teachings of the apostle as presented in the Bible, that you separate your lifestyle from the lifestyle of the world, that you support God's work and support each other with your money, that you forgive each other when you sin against each other. Are you in the faith? Is Christ in you? When you take a big step back and look at your life, what does your life say about these realities? And then what happens, friends, if you actually examine yourself, which can be a difficult thing to do sometimes, and you're not so sure? Paul tells us in chapter five what to do. He says it in these beautiful words that we implore you, be reconciled to God. 
If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. God reconciled, or Christ reconciles the world to God by not counting their sins against them, but taking those sins and paying the penalty for them on the cross. And he says it again in chapter 6. In a favorable time, I listened to you, God said. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So if you don't know if you are in the faith, you can be sure. Put your trust in Christ. That's the call for each one of us. And Paul says to them, I hope that you haven't failed the test because then you're in trouble. And I hope that you would see that we haven't failed the test because if they can truly recognize Christ in themselves and recognize Christ in Paul, then they have to acknowledge the genuineness of his apostleship because he's the one that introduced them to Christ. Genuine faith in the gospel produces genuine faithfulness to Christ. Does your life reflect that? He finishes the section by pointing to the fact that despite the the fact that he's given them a stern warning, restoration is the goal. Nobody likes to be sternly written to or talked to. And in verses 7 through 10, you see a couple of instances where he's praying for them very specific things. Sometimes it's easy when we read the Bible to look over those words, we pray, I pray. But pause there with me for a minute because those reveal the motives, the desires that Paul has for these people and the desires that he has for you. This is what he says in verse 7. We pray to God, our desires before God, that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. We pray that you would do what is right. Even in the midst of the struggle, do what is right. Paul doesn't want vindication. He simply wants what is best for them in the sight of of God. And then he says in verse 9 something else he prays for. We are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. When he says that he's glad that he's weak, he would rather continue to appear to be weak because of the persecution in his life than have to come to them in the strength and stern discipline that they might be forcing upon him. He would rather see their strength by way of their repentance and him to continue to appear weak because he wants their restoration. I'm giving you a warning. I'm calling you to repent. I'm giving you a stern, stern word because, not because we are superior to you. We are warning you not because we take joy in condemnation that so many take joy in. We are warning you because we want to see you restored to God and to restored to his 
church. Genuine faith in the gospel produces a genuine life of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Nobody likes to receive a warning. Nobody likes to be on the receiving end of stern words. But when life and death and eternity are at stake, a warning is what is needed because false assurance about salvation is a lot more serious than a duck thinking he's a dog. False assurance about where you stand with God is a lot more serious than a lost tourist who's on the East Coast when he thinks he's on the West Coast. False assurance is a dangerous place to be. You know, I wonder about all of those who line the streets on Palm Sunday. The ones who laid down their cloaks on the ground, who shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those who in that moment didn't know who they were and thought they were aligned with God. They had false assurance. Because on Friday, the truth came out. (laughs) When the same ones shouted, crucify him. Or perhaps it's the person who walked an aisle and said a prayer at some point in their life And then nothing ever changed. They said the words. They had some kind of interaction around religious ideas, but they did not internalize genuine faith. And so their life doesn't look anything like a follower of Jesus, but they rest at night because they think that walking that aisle was the thing that secures them. Or perhaps it's the person who grew up in a Christian home, who knows the truths of the Lord, who knows the stories of the Bible, who comes to church still even regularly, who associates with a bunch of Christians, but when they actually take the test of self-examination. It reveals through their beliefs or through their disposition or through their affections or through their action that maybe they have had false assurance. Maybe their profession of faith wasn't so genuine after all. Genuine faith in the gospel produces genuine faithfulness to Christ. And don't be confused here. Don't be confused. It's not the activity of faithfulness that brings you to the precipice of eternity and salvation. It's the other way around. It's the faith. God does the work. You do the faith. But there is a proof that that faith is genuine. (laughs) And the proof is what happens after. 
over the coming weeks, months, years, and decades. And for some people, and probably even some people here, there are some people that need to understand that they're not actually a Christian so that they can become a Christian. What about you? What about you? You can know for sure. False assurance in this life is combated by what we call perseverance. You can know if Christ is in you as you continue to persevere to the end. It's the proof. I closed this morning thinking about a college cross-country team that ran the race on a golf course. The officials for the race would go ahead. They'd place flags on the course to show the runners where they were supposed to run. A certain color indicated a left turn. A different color indicated a right turn. And another flag color means run straight ahead. There was a race that was marked out for the runners. And if they had any intention of taking home a medal, they had to follow the race as it was marked out. You couldn't decide boy, this is a six-mile race, but I really feel like I have about four miles in me this morning. So I'm going to take a shortcut. I hope nobody minds. You can't look at a particular hill that day and say, that hill just looks a little too nasty. I think I'm going to go around and skip that one today. You have to run the race that's marked out for you. And so it is, friends, in the Christian life. God has gone before you. He knows your end from your beginning. He knows all of the days of your life. And in his great foreknowledge, he has gone ahead of you, planted these flags in front of you. And scripture says, run with perseverance the race marked out for you. False assurance is combated by perseverance. Are you persevering? (laughs) Genuine faith in the gospel produces genuine faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And so what does your life say? Let's pray together and ask God for help in this. God, the fact that you want us to live in clarity of our position and standing with you is a great blessing to us. God, the fact that we so often struggle with pride or blindness or self-sufficiency can lead to false assurance. And we take the warning from this passage today, one that's serious in its nature of dire consequence. And God, we thank you for reminding us And we thank you for providing the opportunity for us. Today, God, let it be the day where any of us who rest in a false trust or assurance find true hope and forgiveness in Jesus. Would your spirit shower those with grace and mercy and love that you would see more and more men and women and boys and girls saved and restored to you for the sake of of your glory and for the sake of our good. Help us today as we examine. Amen.